Welcome to Oncology Data Advisor, where we explore the latest advances in cancer research and treatment. I'm Kira Smith. In this podcast, Dr. Stephen Horwitz from Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center will be discussing recent advances in the treatment of T-cell lymphoma. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Horwitz. Hi, pleasure to be here. I'm Dr. Stephen Horwitz. I'm a medical oncologist at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. So what do you consider some of the most challenging aspects of managing patients with T-cell lymphoma? I think T-cell lymphomas are, are complicated and, and there's a couple of you know, main points, I think. One is, is accurate diagnosis. So there are almost 30 different subtypes of T-cell lymphoma. And as we develop additional better therapies, often subtype matters. So I think one of the things is just making sure we have the correct diagnosis or the closest diagnosis or description assigned to make the best treatment choices or give you the best chance of making treatment choices. So I think that's an initial challenge. I'd say the secondary thing is um, we just don't have enough effective therapies. So standard therapies can cure a proportion of people. Uh, But outside of that, um, we really have treatments that only work some of the time. So sometimes the challenge is finding the optimal therapy, the right therapy for that person, keeping disease under control. Um, Those are the main ones. Given the data showing the benefit of consolidative stem cell transplant following brintuximab vidotin plus CHP, what considerations go into determining which patients are eligible for this? Yeah, it's a good question. You know, transplant for PTCL is a little bit controversial. There's some larger retrospective series that show that it's not clearly beneficial. And just to clarify here, we're talking about autotransplant as consolidation of first remission, which which is different than relapse disease, of course. Um, I think when we've looked either with some prospective registry, some other prospective phase two studies, and similarly with the with the Echelon 2 study. Now, none of those are randomized comparisons, but when we look, it looks like the patients who achieve a first complete remission, and that's been variably defined as uh, by CT or by PET, that those are probably the patients who, who stand to benefit. At least that's, that's the best data we have, but again, it's a little bit controversial. So when we look at our data and those other data sets, uh, patients who are primary chemorefractory or lack of remission probably don't benefit. Those who achieve PET negative status or get a first complete remission, those look like they're the ones uh, who are most likely to benefit. Um, so that's kind of the, uh, the basic uh, decision point. Um, and then we look at things like risk of the transplant. So, you know, what is your comorbidities? Are you likely to have um, significant side effects with the transplant where um, there's less chance of benefit? So those are, are most of the factors. Um, and, and we kind of apply that to most patients with ALK-negative anaplastic large cell lymphoma, peripheral T-cell lymphoma, not otherwise specified. Um, there are a group of patients with ALK-positive anaplastic large cell lymphoma who, is low, who have low-risk disease, where there's really very little, if any, data that, that you need that additional therapy. So some of the adverse events associated with brintuximab vidotin are peripheral neuropathy, neutropenia, and febrile neutropenia. Would you recommend GM-CSF prophylaxis for these patients? Yeah, so for, for growth factor support, we use GCSF, but, but along those lines, if you looked at the Echelon 2 study, um, patients were allowed to get primary prophylaxis with growth factor um, based on uh, treating physician choice. So there's a big group of patients that got primary prophylaxis, meaning they got it before an event, and then there's another group that didn't. And there was significantly less neutropenia and febrile neutropenia in those who got primary prophylaxis. So that actually went into the label, and it's generally recommended that you do give primary prophylaxis both to reduce the incidence of grade four neutropenia, febrile neutropenia, and also hopefully keep people 
uh, on cycle. So I, I think that's the main thing, and that's something we apply in general. And again, in the U.S., it, it, it's part of the FDA label. You know, I think otherwise, you know, the main side effect we see is neuropathy, and that can be cumulative cycle to cycle. Um, kind of like with other upfront therapy, we're giving relatively dose-intense therapy to try to achieve a cure. So in that sense, um, we're not planning on treating people with 16 cycles of brentuximab or long-term treatment. Um, so we don't want to leave people impaired with their neuropathy, but usually we'll try to push through at least grade one and maybe early grade two, particularly if there's just some sensory changes and no functional impairment with the idea that if we just get them to six cycles, we're done with therapy. And if they're cured, we never have to circle back to treatments again. Um, the way the study was done though, once you got, or if you got to grade two neuropathy, you would have a dose holder dose reduction. Um, so I'd say that would be standard. We'll kind of look at that, how bad that neuropathy is, how close they are to finishing the treatment and then decide about reducing uh, the brentuximab or, uh, or um, holding it. For patients with cutaneous T-cell lymphoma, is there a rationale for adding mogamolizumab as a secondary agent to extracorporeal photophoresis early in disease? Yeah, it's an interesting question. And um, as far as I know, there's no data on that. So, you know, we think extracorporeal photophoresis is a, is a, a very basic way of stimulating the immune system against uh, the cancer cells in the blood. The cells are taken out. They're, they're given a photoactivating agent, sorolin, mixed with ultraviolet light, which we know, you know, can kill CTCL cells. We use phototherapy, you know, and then given back to the patient. And we think that creates um, somewhat of an immune response against sort of that killed antigen. Um, so the idea is if you're creating immune response, can you localize or enhance that immune response with mogamolizumab? I think is a reasonable question. I think there may be studies going on, but I don't know of any data. Um, Along those same lines, there is a, a national study uh, uh, through the NCI uh, that we and others are participating in giving mogamolizumab with an anti-CD47 uh, antibody, magrolimab. So the CD47 antibodies block the don't eat me signal. So that is another way of giving an antibody uh, to, to target an immune response, as well as giving sort of an immune stimulator, in this case, an anti-CD47 antibody. So that's an ongoing clinical trial. So that's a similar concept. So a long way of saying, um, I don't know, but I think the idea of enhancing focal uh, immune responses is, is probably a good idea because one of the issues with CTCLs, we don't tend to get very durable remissions off of therapy. And if you could really create a, a, an autologous immune effect against, against the tumor cells, then you do have the possibility of creating some more durable benefit. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Horowitz, for joining us and sharing all this valuable information with us. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to Oncology Data Advisor. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you'll never miss an episode. In addition to our podcast, the Oncology Data Advisor site features expert perspectives and news stories on the latest in cancer research and treatments, all found at oncdata.com.